Take your Bible, if you would, this morning and open it up to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. This is the second sermon in a short series on financial stewardship that we're doing. So yes, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have visited on a Sunday where we're talking about giving. Okay, We're in the middle of a short series on financial stewardship. And for whatever reason, um, you know, the Lord has a, a sense of humor, I guess, that um, not only are we preaching on giving, we're also talking about eschatology in Sunday school. So two areas that pastors fear to tread, we're doing all at the same time. So we are gluttons for punishment here. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. Now, this series, this financial stewardship series, overlapped a little bit with our verse-by-verse series, which we prefer to preach verse-by-verse through the Scriptures, a verse-by-verse series uh, through the Gospels called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And we will get back into that full force after Easter. But for today and for the next two weeks, we're going to keep looking at this passage of Scripture in this study that we've called Gospel-Centered Giving. So now, as you're finding the text today, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 9, I'm going to bring up something on the screen here and, and ask the kids to tell me what's, what's wrong with this currency, this money. Uh, it says it's dollars. It's 50. It's got good old George on it here. Um, what, what's different about that from what would our normal currency be? First of all, George isn't on the $50 bill, is he? What, what do we have right here? Ah, there, right off the bat. Oh, this word right here. The Confederate States of America, that's, that's Confederate money. Now, if you have a piece of Confederate money today, it's probably worth something simply because of collector value. Uh, but in the, at the end of the Civil War, that was not worth what it said it was worth. It was not worth $50. Um, Confederate money was created on the eve of the Civil War in 1681. Uh, it wasn't backed, though, by any assets. But nothing. Gold, cotton, nothing. It wasn't backed by any assets it was simply backed by a promise to pay after the war was done. Now, by the end of 1863, the handwriting was already on the wall in regards to the direction that the war was going. And all Confederate money began to lose any value it did have, which wasn't true value anyway. But it began to lose all of its value. Now, some in the South held on to their Confederate money till the very end. But by the time 1863 rolled around, many were beginning to trade in their Confederate dollars for um, U.S. dollars. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, and just to say hypothetical. A person is living in the South during the Civil War, but he's a northerner. He plans to move as soon as the war is over back home. But while he's in the South, he's accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. But now it's 1863, and there's no doubt that the North is going to win the war and that the end is imminent. Now, what is that person going to do with his Confederate money that he's accumulated? Well, if he's smart, there's only one answer. He should immediately trade in his Confederate currency for U.S. currency. The only money that will have any value once the war is over is the U.S. currency. So he should trade it in. He should only keep enough of the Confederate currency to meet his short-term needs. Now, as Christians... We, too, are aliens living in a land that is not our home, that is not our own. We, too, are living in the middle of a great war. Yet we have rock-solid certainty that though the enemy still rages and skirmishes abound, the war itself is actually over. Christ has won. Our enemy 
the God of this world has been defeated. And so we too need to see that this world's currency, the things of this world that the world so greatly treasures, will become worthless when Christ returns. Or when we die, whichever comes first. And so I I put the Confederate money up here simply as an illustration this morning. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. This is a series about financial stewardship, and this is what this series is all about. About The series is about handling our resources in a way that reflects our knowledge that this is not our home. And that we are part of a victorious, heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that while we are still living in this fallen world, we are to live with a wartime mentality. We are to wisely ration our temporal resources that we currently have. And through radical generosity, we are to boldly trade in our earthly currency for heavenly currency that will last for all eternity. Luke 12, verse 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I want to be that kind of person that Jesus speaks of there in Luke chapter 12. I want our church to be that kind of church. I want our church to be like the Macedonian churches that we read of in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul, in an attempt to inspire the Corinthian church to follow through on their commitment that they had made to to give to the needy saints in Jerusalem, he points out to the Corinthian church the radical generosity of the Macedonian churches as an example. He wants the Corinthians and he wants us to live in such a way that we steward our resources like the Macedonians did. So let's look at this text again this week. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 9. Please stand now as we read the word of God. We stand in the honor of reading God's word. This is our primary text for today. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, this morning we just ask that you would take your word and do what you will with it. We pray that it would go forth unhindered and not return void. We know that that's how your word works. But Father, we also know the way our hearts and minds often work. We're often hardened to hear what you want to say because of our own desires, our own foolishness. We want the text to say what we want it to say instead of what it actually says. So God, I pray that you would keep us from taking your word and twisting it. Keep me from doing that in any sort of way. So give me a mouth to speak. And as we pray each Sunday, give each one of us in here ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now last week, as I mentioned, we began to look at this passage and we only made it through verse 2. And in those two verses, those first two verses, we saw that the type of giving that Paul was commending the Macedonians for and challenging the Corinthians to emulate was first of all, and I'll bring up the points from last week, was first of all, grace-enabled giving. It was grace-enabled giving. 2 Corinthians 8.1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So God's grace had been given to them, and that was what was enabling them to then become generous givers. This means that the source of our generosity is God's grace at work in us. So lavishly generous giving starts with us seeking God earnestly, seeking Him, His enabling power, seeking Him in prayer and by spending time in His Word, which is the means He uses to supply us with the grace we need. And their giving had, was grace-enabled and part of the reason you know it was grace-enabled is because it was circumstance-defying. We read of these terrible circumstances that they were in. They were in a severe test of affliction and in extreme poverty, according to verse 2. Yet their affliction didn't keep them from joy, nor did their poverty keep them from generosity. And that's because it was supernatural. The work in them was supernatural. It was a work of God. And God works in us through His Spirit. Therefore, grace-enabled, circumstance-defying giving is also joy-fueled giving. It is joy-fueled giving because joy is part of the is one of the elements of the fruit of the spirit. Therefore, we should not be surprised when God's work, God's grace is at work in, in us through His Spirit. That that joy is one of the byproducts. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So their circumstances were deep. And devastating, yet they were filled with God's grace. And therefore, they were overflowing with joy. Joy that overflowed and enabled them to become generous givers. And so our last point last week was grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, open-handed giving. Open-handed giving. So now, the question for us this morning is, this sort of lingering in the air after last week's sermon was, is that the type of giving that's exhibited in our lives? What marks that type of giving? Well, in verses 3 through 9, Paul makes several observations about this radical generosity. Okay, I've taken those observations and I've, I've turned them into 10 questions for us to ask ourselves over the next two weeks. We'll tackle five of those questions today, then five more next week. Now, the first set of five observations are found in verses 3 through 4. So that's going to be our focus today, verses 3 and 4, in that um, and those, those verses lead me to ask this question. Do we see giving the way the Macedonians saw giving? Do we see giving the way they did? 
Now, the final five observations will be in verses 5 through 9. We'll look at those next week. And that will lead me to ask the question, do we approach giving the way the Macedonians did? And not all of those verses are about the Macedonians, but we continue to see in that text principles about how to approach giving. And then we'll conclude on March 29th, which is Palm Sunday, with a more in-depth look at verse 9 alone. Verse 9 deserves its own sermon. Verse 9 deserves its own sermon series. So we're going to take... Palm Sunday, which I think is a perfect verse for us to ponder on and meditate upon as we enter into Holy Week, is this verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So with that introduction and recap, let's jump into today's text. Uh, like I said, we're going to, verse 3 is where we're going to start, but we need to begin back at verse 1 in order to get the flow. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3. For, let me pause right there. So when Paul gives us this word for, he is signaling that he's about to show us something. He's about to show us the marks of what made them generous givers. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So first I want to ask us this question. Do we see giving as, number one, an honorable stewardship? Is that the way we see giving? It is an honorable stewardship that's been entrusted to us as believers. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. The first thing I want us to notice about the Macedonians, about their astonishing generosity, is that they understood themselves to be stewards of God's resources. Now, in those first few words there, you, you may be asking, well, where do you see that, Steve, in these, these words here, for they gave according to their means? Well, well, walk with me here. First, this phrase, according to their means, in the Greek means katadinamine. It, it, it means by their power, according to their power. The word dinamine is the word where we get, get uh, dynamite from, dinamis, okay? It's, it's, it, it means power or strength. So the, the Macedonians were giving according to the financial power that they had according to their ability, which means, okay, it wasn't very much. We already know they were in extreme poverty. We already know that they were in, in severe affliction. Now, we are never told in the Scriptures, and this is what I want us to see, at least part of what I want us to see in this first part, we are never told in the Scriptures to only give if we have the means. We are told to give according to our means. That's an important distinction. Because usually we make choices in the world today that we will do something if we have the power to do it. If we have the means to do it, we'll do it. But Paul doesn't say they gave. He, he says they gave according to their means. And we see that all throughout Scripture, even Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, when in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about giving, he doesn't say if you give. He says when you give, don't be like the hypocrites. And so we see in the Scriptures that we are expected to give. 1 Corinthians 16.1 records Paul's initial uh, effort to get the Corinthians to begin to make this collection for the Jerusalem saints. And we read this in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Verse 2, On the first day of the week, that's Sunday by the way, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. What I want you to focus on is there, each of you each of you, every one of you, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. You're supposed, each of you is to give according to your means. 
And, and by the way, that's talking to the church gathering. And that's evidence there that the church gathered on the first day of the week and that they took collections while they gathered. Now, we give according to the financial power that has been entrusted to us. That means our giving is not about a dollar amount, but about rightly handling what's been entrusted to us. But more to my point this morning, we need to understand this little phrase, according to their means. We need to understand what it would have meant to the first century listeners, first century readers. You see, this phrase was a very common technical phrase that oftentimes appeared in first century legal documents, usually in documents regarding marriage. Usually it was, it was a part of a marriage contract. And in those contracts, the husband would promise to provide for a wife according to his power or according to his means. And it's the exact same phrase that appears in, in those ancient marriage contracts. And so that meant that the husband understood that part of his legal obligations, expectations in relation to his material possessions was to steward or to handle that money in such a way that his bride did not go uncared for. And that's what he was contracting to. And the same is true for us in a way. For we as Christians are God's people and we are to understand that all of our material possessions, all of our resources that we've been entrusted with are given to us not just for us, but for others. We will see as, well, I should say we will as God's stewards, we should as God's stewards, lovingly provide for a different bride, Christ's bride, the church. Now God obviously isn't helpless, waiting for us to provide for him and for his church. No, quite the opposite. We read in Job chapter 41, verse 11, God speaking about himself. He says, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heavens is mine. But God has graciously made us stewards of his resources, not for his sake, but for ours. So stewardship is our great joy. It is our great privilege. When we know that what we have isn't ours, we happily let go of it for his purposes. Now understanding that, that what we have isn't really ours is key to generous giving. Okay, It's key to giving for kingdom purposes. Is that understanding that, that everything you have is not yours. It belongs to God. Uh, a great picture of this can be found in, in, in 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, we have the record of, of David doing a collection for the sake of building the temple. Now, David wasn't allowed to build the temple. God had told him through the prophet Nathan that, that his son Solomon would build the temple. But David was going to collect all the materials and everything needed for David to build the temple. And we read in First Chronicles 29, verse 10, after this great offering had come in, we read this, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? 
For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. So I love that. That's, that's the way we should view giving. When we give, we don't give saying, well, I'm, I'm glad I can help out. We give knowing this was entrusted to me. It's all his anyway. And what a privilege it is to now give it back in such a way that we use it for the glory of the kingdom. King David saw what we need to see, that we are temporary custodians of earthly riches. And the reason we've been given that custodianship is to turn those resources, or is to use those resources, I should say, for the glory of God's kingdom purposes. Randy Alcorn, from whom I got the Confederate illustration earlier, Randy Alcorn says this, Suppose you have something important that you want to give to someone who needs it. You wrap it up and you hand it over to the FedEx guy. Now what would you think of instead of delivering the package, he took it home and opened it and kept it for himself? You say, this guy doesn't get it. The packages don't belong to him. He's just the middleman. His job is to get them from me to the person I want him to hand them off to. And so we need to see that just because God puts his money in our hands, puts his resources in our hands, it doesn't mean he intends it to stay there. We are simply the middleman. So when the paycheck is in your hand, we need to look at that paycheck in our hands and say, this is not mine. This, this is not mine. It's been entrusted to me. I am to use this for God's glory. When we put our hands on the steering wheel of that car, we are to look at that car and say, this is not mine. This has been given to me for his glory. And so on and so on and so on. When we're in that house, we are to look at the house and say, this is not mine. This is to be used for his glory. I used to do a little illustration for children when we talked about um, giving like this. And I would have a, in children's church, I would have a pipe and a bowl. And I would say, God intends for us to be a pipe and not a bowl. In the sense that he pours his resources into us and we are to have an, an open end on the other side that those resources go out to others and bless others however we can. We are not to be like a bowl where God's resources come in and that water just begins to stagnate and make us sick. Instead, it's to flow through us and bring glory to the kingdom. Romans 14, 12 says that each one of us will give an, an account of himself to God. And that includes an account of how we handled all that he has entrusted us with. Every paycheck we've ever received. Everything you've ever bought. Every car you've ever driven. Every house you've ever owned. There will be an accounting of how we use that. Did we understand that we were stewards of everything God gave us? Isn't that at least part of what the parable of the talents is about in Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 and following has this parable in it. But we read in verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And we know from the story that two of the servants had, had used what the master had entrusted them with well... And one servant didn't, and the consequences were dire. 
So Luke 12, 48 teaches us that everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. As Americans, we should really, really take those verses to heart. Because as Americans, we, when it comes to physical resources, material resources, we have been given so much. And everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. So this stewardship should not be seen as a burden, but as a great honor So when our eyes are open to the fact that we don't actually own anything that we have, but that it's his and that needs to be used for his purpose, then then our giving can become something else. And so my next question is, do we see giving as a calculated risk? Do we see giving as a calculated risk? Verse 3 again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Now, Paul had seen the poverty of these saints, and instead of making excuses, they graciously gave of what they had been entrusted with. But astonishingly and quite illogically, they went above and beyond that level of generosity when we read that they went and they gave beyond their means. Now, it's interesting. I don't think Paul does this accidentally. This phrase, likewise, beyond their means, was another term also used in contracts that related to marriage. But in this case, it was used in divorce contracts or in divorce proceedings. And sometimes in a divorce document, you would read that the husband complained that the caring of his wife caused him to go beyond his means. It was beyond now his power to care for his wife, and so he wanted a divorce. And so we see the the term used in that way as well. So let me just reiterate what we saw last week, and that is that this Giving that is required, that, that, that's mentioned here of going beyond our means is the fruit of grace. The only reason we can give beyond our power is if a supernatural power is at work in us. No one in here will give beyond their means of their own power. That's a work of God. So now when I read that they gave beyond their means, I, I honestly don't know how to read that other than to conclude that these believers were willing to take some calculated risks with their money for God's glory. This is what moves us from giving into sacrifice. We are to be people who take calculated, faith-fueled risks with our God-given resources for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. I think if we sit and just think about it a little bit, we'll realize that we're willing to take risks with our money for many other things, for ourselves, from how we invest our money, to even buying certain cars. We take risks with our money. Don't know if we're going to get a lemon. We don't know if the stock market's going to crash. But it's okay taking risks when it's for us. How hesitant we are to take risks to invest in the kingdom sometimes. Now, as I mentioned last week, there's this amazing incident that happens in Luke chapter 21 of this nameless widow dropping both of her coins. So in your kids' notes there, kids, you just got the answer. Both of her coins, all she had to live on, into the temple offering box. And upon observing her, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. He's referring to others that were contributing. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. I, I honestly don't... Why did Jesus... Why did he observe this, and why did he bring, draw his disciples' attention to this, and why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to record this for us? I think this, the reason is simple. 
Jesus wants his people to be like this widow and be willing to take some pretty radical risks with their money for the cause of God. Now, there may have been many that day that were giving according to their means, but this woman, as Jesus could testify, was giving beyond her means, beyond her power. But what keeps us from pursuing heavenly riches through risky, radical giving? Well, it's usually because the enemy has convinced us that it's foolish, that it's unwise, maybe even that it's unbiblical. And that it's okay for us to center our comfort and our peace on Confederate money. The enemy wants us to find our comfort in Confederate currency. It's a false comfort. Remember the parable of Luke chapter 12? Where the rich man, after building bigger barns to store his stuff, dies before he can even use them. And we read in verse 20, it says, But when God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I want us to feel the push of Jesus this morning, agitating our sensibilities, getting us out of our comfort zone, getting us out of the habit of seeing money as a means of comfort. Or seeing any of our material possessions as a means of comfort. For most of us, our problem isn't that we risk too much for God, but that we risk too little. So generous giving starts with us seeing ourselves as stewards, honorable, it's an honorable stewardship. And then we, we look at our stuff as stewards and, and we refuse to find our comfort in those things. Which, which leads to us being willing to, to sacrifice our resources for the kingdom of God which I believe leads to taking calculated risks with our resources. And then the next thing I think we need to see, though, is that this giving is a free choice. Do we see giving as a free choice? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Of their own accord. The Macedonian churches were not coerced or forced into giving. This was not a law being laid down for them by Paul, but rather it was an act of grace is what we read. Remember, it was God's grace that preceded and enabled their free will giving. You see, once a person's will has been awakened by God, it then freely desires the things of God. So they gave of their own accord, literally it translates, of their own self-choice. It was a giving that wasn't coerced, it wasn't forced. It was freely flowing from an inwardly changed heart. Freely flowing from an inwardly changed heart. So if, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but gentlemen, I hope you give your wives um, flowers from time to time. Okay, I'm not going to show hands because I don't want to get anybody in trouble this morning. Okay, but hopefully you, you do give your wife flowers from time to time and Especially on those special days, but even beyond that. Now, do you give your wife flowers out of duty? Don't raise your hands. Do you give your wife flowers in an attempt to get something back? That would be deceit. Duty? Deceit? Or do you give your wife flowers out of delight? That's the question to ask ourselves about our finances as well. Do I give to the Lord out of duty? Well, doggone it, Steve's preaching four sermons on this thing. I guess I need to up my giving. 
or out of some sort of attempt to deceive the Almighty. Almighty. Well, if I give to God, then surely he will fix this problem in my life. Or or maybe I'll get a a better car if I give more to God. I once heard a a prosperity preacher um, have people call in and he wanted them to give. He said, said, the Lord is telling me right now that there are people out there that are in debt. That doesn't take a prophetic mind to know that, all right? But he says, the Lord is telling me there's people in debt. And he's telling me there's someone watching right now who is in debt. And he's telling me that you need to call right now and pledge $1,000 to my ministry. Put a, a faith seed on my ministry on the credit card on which you have debt and the Lord will clear the debt. The most deceitful, demonic thing I think I've ever heard on TBN. Horrible. Horrible. But unfortunately, some people view giving that way. If I give this to God, well, then he'll fix these other issues in my life. No, we don't give to God out of duty or deceit, but out of delight. That's why it's a free choice. This is where the New Testament giving starts. It's a choice from the heart, not an adherence to a law. The most common question I get as a pastor regarding giving, well, you can probably guess. What's the most common question as a pastor I get regarding giving? I'm sure I'll get it in the new members class. If you're going to go to that class, um, you're going to get the answer today. What is the most common question I get? Are we required to give 10% to the Lord? Are Christians expected to tithe? Are we supposed to give that percentage of our income that's prescribed in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, let me just tell you, I don't like that question. Okay? Not because I don't have an answer for it. I do, and I'll give it to you in a second. But I don't like what lies underneath the question. First, the motivation behind the question is usually aimed at finding what our minimal requirement is before God. Let's go back to the flower illustration in premarital counseling. Do I need to give my wife flowers like every two months? If a young man said that to me, I think I'd grab him by the shirt collar and say, you idiot, you don't get it. I don't like what lies underneath the question. We're looking for the minimum requirement. We want a rule to obey so that we can feel good about ourselves. We want a law to keep so we can check off a box. And that makes us feel good about who? Us. But that's not how it works in the new covenant. Secondly, the question assumes that there is a requirement. So the follow-up question is, if we aren't required, if I say that, no, I don't believe that the the 10% tithe is binding, the follow-up question almost inevitably is this. If we aren't required to give 10%, then what are we required to do? That is absolutely the wrong place to start when we examine our giving. Why? Because we can give an external tithe to God while still loving money on the inside. Right before Jesus chides the Pharisees for their hypocritical use of the tithe, Jesus says this, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It is possible to tithe faithfully and be full of greed and wickedness. But wait, Steve, didn't you say earlier in this very sermon that we are expected to give? I did. 
I did. Yes, but not because of adherence to a law. Everyone that is a Christian is expected to give because it's expected that anyone who has a transformed heart will have a transformed view of their money too. Sam Houston, you probably heard the story in 1854, Sam Houston was, um, was baptized. Sam Houston, the famous Texan and governor, seventh governor of Texas and uh, lawman and, and soldier. And Sam Houston became a believer and he was baptized and when he was getting ready, about ready to get into the, the baptismal waters, um, the, the, the preacher noticed he still had his wallet on him and said, Sir, you probably want to take your wallet out. And Sam Houston said, No, please baptize all of me, especially my wallet. In other words, giving in the new covenant is the fruit of being new creations in Christ. No longer is giving about adherence to the law written on stone tablets, but the product of the law now written on the heart. The tithe was a law given to the theocratic state of Israel. It was designed by God to enable worship, both in maintaining the place of worship, the temple or the tabernacle, but also to provide for the priests and the Levites. The tithe was therefore part of the civil and ceremonial laws governing Israel. But as I've stated many times before, the old covenant consisted of shadows, whereas the new covenant contains the substance. In the new covenant, one is now enabled by a changed heart to desire to keep God's moral law that undergirds the tithe. And what is that? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart in all your soul, in all your mind, in all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law that undergirds the tithe. And now that law is written on our heart in such a way that we should want to do that. We should desire that so much that even our wallet has been baptized. So now empowered by the Spirit and enabled by grace and filled with joy, we offer all that we are and all that we have to God out of a heart that has been made new. So no, here's the answer to your question. I do not believe the tithe is binding or required. However, I do think using the tithe as a starting point is okay and even wise. If 10% of the income was given to God by those living in the shadows... How much more should we who live in the substance give? So I like to think of the tithe, an illustration I heard recently, like training wheels. They're not required, but they can be helpful. Especially for a baby Christian. So long as we understand, it's only a shadow. So really the question is, is this. Is our giving the result of what we feel required to give? Or is it a free choice because we love to give? That, that's the question hanging over our church this morning. Are we giving because we feel required to give? Or are we giving because it's love flowing out of our heart for God and man? So this phrase, of their own accord, also carries the connotation of, of it being a choice made with delight or joy. It's a choice prompted by and supported by and carried out by love and joy. So the next question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we see giving as, number four, a gratifying privilege? A gratifying privilege. Verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Here's what I want to focus on now. Begging us earnestly. 
for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I, I love this. We, we get the sense that perhaps Paul, knowing their extreme situation, knowing their afflictions, had told them that they don't need to worry about trying to give to the Jerusalem saints. But they responded with a heartfelt desire that led them to beg to be included. They wanted the privilege of being involved in this giving. A gratifying privilege. Now why do I say gratifying? Because begging implies joy. We beg for what we desire. We don't beg for what we're obligated to participate in. So, so if, if my kids are at the grocery store and see a Reese's cup, they may beg for that. They desire that. But when they come home and Heather has cabbage stew prepared, they're not begging anymore. They don't want that. They don't beg for that. They don't desire that. You beg for what you want. You beg for what gives you pleasure. You beg for what gives you joy. You beg for what you love. The Macedonians are not giving out of some moral obligation that goes against their heartfelt wishes. They aren't mustering up an ability to give beyond their means. They are not dutifully setting aside some percentage. No, they are freely, joyfully giving whatever they can and then more. It was their pleasure, their delight to give up their stuff in order to see God's work advance. It says that they beg earnestly for the favor of taking part. The word favor here is the same word for grace. It's charis. It's the word grace. They desired to partake in the grace of giving to their brothers and sisters in need. It gave them great joy. It gave them great pleasure to give toward the work of God. It gave them great joy. It gave them great pleasure to participate in the grace of God toward other people. Now think about it. God's grace uses vehicles like you and me and our resources to extend his grace to others. So this was grace-enabled giving. So God's grace uses vehicles like you and me and our resources to extend his grace to others. What a privilege to be a part of that. As we saw last week, we have a higher joy, a higher pleasure, a higher treasure that we are now pursuing. Therefore, we are willing to endure suffering and loss of our stuff now because it's nothing compared to what we have in Christ. I want you to... Think about that. That's willingness to lose our stuff now for the sake of loving others. And I want you to think about these Christians that were written to in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Listen to this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That gets me pumped up that we should be willing to let our property go, even be taken from us, because we have a better possession. We have a better city. We have a better land. That's giving Guys, this giving that we see in Hebrews is giving out of faith in superior promises. It's giving out of faith in superior promises. Faith that knows that even if we suffer loss now, we gain Christ. And what a far greater gain that is than anything Wall Street could give us. The same author of Hebrews writes this about Moses. 
Hebrews eleven twenty six. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So having the opportunity to be a steward of God's generous gifts through generosity towards people and towards the work of God is a gratifying privilege. And lavish generosity is also a privilege because it, it binds us together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So my last point this morning is simply this. Do we see giving as a delightful fellowship? Verse 3 again. For they gave according to their means, but as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now I'm drawing this final point today from those two words, taking part. Because in the Greek, they're one word. And it's the one word called koinonia. Who knows they're Greek enough to know what koinonia means? What's koinonia? It's usually translated what? Fellowship. Koinonia. This taking part is fellowship. It's a very sweet word in the New Testament. It usually refers to the bond of love that the saints have for one another. And it certainly applies here. Giving is a powerful means of fellowship in the body. So we see later in the text in verse 14 of chapter 8. It says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, and this is a quote now from Exodus 16 verse 18, which is when God gave manna to the people of Israel. So as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. God pours his resources into the community of believers so that we can love on one another with them. That's the body at work, looking out for others' interests, serving one another, building one another up, outdoing one another and showing honor, contributing to one another's needs. Now, it's interesting in a lot of my research over the past couple of weeks, seeing how different pastors handle giving in their church, and we handle it secretly here, and I think we're going to continue to do that. But there was one pastor who was making an argument based upon this Romans passage that says we should outdo one another in showing honor to make the giving public so that you can have a nice little healthy competition within the body about your giving. I honestly don't think that's healthy. But I can see what he means by it. That is, we should, we should desire so much to love on each other that we're just going to keep giving and keep giving and outdoing one another in a good sort of way. And so we see that in this text here that these folks had koinonia, fellowship that was increasing. They understood that they were metaphorically speaking foreigners in, a, in another land. And our fellowship increases when we understand that we are not home yet. That our, our confederate currency, if you will, will one day be worthless. And that our God has won the war. And so we gaze intently looking for the age to come while holding loosely to the resources that we have in this age and try to find any way we can to serve one another with those resources. So Hebrews 13, 14 says this. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips acknowledging his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So part of looking to our eternal city, according to the book of Hebrews, is looking for ways to do good and share what we have with one another. So let me conclude this morning. The only way we can offer up those kind of sacrifices is through the sacrifice. The sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. Ultimately, this whole passage rests on verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So yes, let's look to that heavenly city, a city of heavenly riches, an inheritance beyond imagination. We look beyond this world because our Savior came into this world and gave it all. He gave it all. And that's what these tables are about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about, what communion is all about. It is a a visible representation of what we read earlier in Philippians 2, of what we read here, that Jesus came and gave every bit of it. I'm glad Jesus didn't choose to tithe for us and only give 10% of himself, but he gave all. He shed his blood, poured out all his blood. His flesh was ripped apart. So this morning now we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper as our response to the word. If you've been to Harbin's before, you know how we do this. If not, I'm going to explain it real quickly. I'm going to ask the heads of each household to come on up and take the elements for your family. And so we'll take the elements back to your family, both the bread and the, the juice. Take it back to your family. And then we'll wait and we'll partake of those all together. So right now... I'm going to ask the head of each household. If, you are a, if, you don't, if your husband's not here, then you are the head of your household. If you're a single, then you're the head of your household. Come on up. Let's take this, these elements this morning as our response to the message. Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to us by the Lord Jesus for the church, for believers. And so this morning... If you're not a believer here this morning, you've never placed all your hope, all your faith in Jesus Christ alone, I ask you not to partake of the Lord's Supper. We read in the scripture of the Lord's Supper in in the Gospels, but we also read of, of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I'm going to turn there this morning as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. It says in verse 23 of chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here's what I want to do. Before we take it, I want us to do what Jesus did. Let's give thanks. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are our model of sacrificial giving. Thank you that your body was hung up on a tree. It was whipped, had thorns pressed into it. It was probably disfigured beyond belief. All because of the love that the Father has for us. So that the wrath that we deserve could be absorbed in your perfect body. Sinless body. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for what it symbolizes. We thank you for bread in our life. The provision you give us. But most of all, we thank you for the bread of life. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now partake of the bread.
It says in verse 25, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's now thank Jesus for his shed blood. Jesus, thank you again. This time for your blood. Jesus, we know the Bible is a bloody book. Blood shed all over the place. Blood shed by the hands of men. Blood shed by your requirement of the law. Because the only way that sins could be forgiven is by the shedding of blood. And so, for centuries, priests and the faithful would come and they would have different animals slaughtered. And all of that was looking forward to one sacrifice that would satisfy our Father in heaven forever and ever. The blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy a holy God. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you came and you took on human flesh and your blood was shed. Perfect, sinless blood shed to pay the price for our sins. To atone for our sins. So we thank you for that. And as we drink this cup, let us think about what this means. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, as a body now, let's partake of the cup. The Bible says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that verse. Someone once asked me, Do we celebrate the resurrection when we do the Lord's Supper? Because it seems like it's just about the death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. We worship a risen king, a living Lord. The blood was shed, the body was broken, and then he rose again with a new body. An eternal body that we will one day have. And so we proclaim his death. We proclaim the gospel until he returns.